So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Good morning and welcome to Christ the King Anglican Church at Crimson Tees on this second Sunday of Lent. Um, it's also St. Patrick's Day. I understand there's a walk going on that has uh, made traffic very snarled up today. I won't be saying anything about uh, uh, St. Patrick in my sermon today, unfortunately. <laughs> It's good to be back with you um, after being away on a two-month sabbatical. Um, during that two-month time, my husband Gary and I traveled by ship from New York City to Hong Kong by the Suez Canal, uh, stopping at 15 ports along the way. And having taken the uh, proverbial slow boat to China, I went on to visit some amazing uh, places and uh, amazing and beautiful uh, places and people in, in China. But it is good to be home again uh, and back here worshiping with you at Crimson Tees. When I got back 10 days ago, it was a great blessing to catch up on all the uh, Samuel sermons that I missed over two months. And this morning, I have the privilege of uh, continuing in the Samuel series. So our text this morning from God's Word is 2 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 to 18. And I encourage you to have your uh, Bibles open to the text. Thank you, Yi, for, for reading it so well for us. I'd like to start a sermon, as I did a moment ago, by reading a key verse from the text. The verse that I picked this morning is verse 15 of our chapter. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to his people. But I actually considered using another verse that isn't even in this chapter. Um, yet, I think it is equally worthy of being the banner uh, for this text. Uh, that verse comes from chapter 5. It comes from right after David, the newly anointed king over all Israel, leads Israel to take uh, Jerusalem by force from the Jebusites, and set it up as the city of David, the capital of David's newly united kingdom of Israel. So the verse is uh, chapter 5, verse 12. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that the Lord had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. But David... And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that the Lord had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. 
Now let me tell you the verse that I didn't pick, even though it occurs twice in our passage, so it's clearly very important. Uh, the verse is um, 6b and also 14b of our chapters, that is uh, the latter half of, of 6 and 14, you can take a look there, it says, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Why didn't I choose this as the key verse of this passage? Well, it's because I felt it was too easily taken out of context and misapplied. And what is the context? A list of bloody battles that David wages with the nations that surround Israel. Now, please don't misunderstand me. The verse is absolutely true. It was the Lord who gave victory to David in these battles. But what I don't want us to lose sight of is what these battles were about and why it was the Lord's will to give David victory in them. We'll get to that in a moment. Our chapter today has three parts. The first part is the list of battles I just spoke of, punctuated twice by the refrain, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. The second part is the account of David dedicating to the Lord the spoils and tribute and gifts he acquired from defeating, subjugating, and in one case just plain impressing the nations that surround Israel. The third part at the end of the chapter is a summary of David's reign and the officials uh, of his government. I'm going to take up these three parts in, in turn. And I came up with uh, alliterative headings for the three sections to help us keep track. The three headings brought to you by the letter G are gore, glory, and government. So that's gore, glory, and government. So starting off with gore. Verses 1 to 6 and 13, 14. The first thing to notice about this list of battles is that the territories and peoples that David conquers and subjugates are the ones that surround Israel. The Philistines are on the Mediterranean coastal strip to the southwest. Moab is east of the Jordan River, as is Ammon, uh, which is in a list in verse 12. Zobah and Aram of the Syrians are north and northeast of Galilee. And Edom and Amalek are south of the Salt Sea, that is uh, what we call today the Dead Sea. But there's something more to recognize about the, the sum total of all the territories that uh, David conquers. And that is that David's territory now extends to the boundaries of the land that God originally promised to Abraham. 
hear this clear statement about the geographical boundaries of the Promised Land from Deuteronomy. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon, and from the river, the river Euphrates, to the western sea. In the south, the wilderness is the Negev, just up from the Red Sea, where the Edomites and Amalekites are. In the north, the Lebanon is Zobah, where Hadadazur is. In the northeast and east, between the river Euphrates and the Jordan River, are Aram, where the Syrians are, and Transjordan, where the Moabites and the Ammonites are. And in the west is the Mediterranean Sea, or the Western Sea, on the coast of which are the Philistines. Get the picture? For the first time ever, the whole land God originally promised to Abraham is possessed by Israel. The only other territory mentioned in this passage is Hamath. This territory is north of Zobah, and it does not appear to have been conquered by, by David. Rather, in verses 9 and 10, the king of Hamath, is, his name is Toy, voluntarily sends his son uh, Joram with a peace offering of silver, gold, and bronze for David in gratitude for David's conquest of Toy's longtime enemy, Hadadazer. So, by the help of the Lord, David has possessed the whole of the Promised Land, and his name is great beyond the borders of it. Why is this important? Well, remember chapter 7 that Keith preached on over the last two weeks? Chapter 7 began with God's unexpected promises to David. Kingdom of God promises originally made to Abraham about a people, a land, and a blessing that will extend to all the families of the earth. These promises are renewed for Abraham's descendant, David, and fleshed out in terms of an everlasting house or dynasty for David, that a descendant of his will reign forever on his throne with resounding implications for all mankind and all eternity. Remember that these kingdom of God promises blew David's mind and elicited his stirring praise and the singular petition that he made to God that God would do all that he has said. Up until David, the people descended from the great patriarch Abraham, the Israelites, live in the promised land but have never fully possessed it. They have lived with constant unrest from hostile neighbors. Now through the victories the Lord has given David, they have rest from their enemies on all sides, and they are in a land in which they can put down roots and flourish. Okay, 
So the result of these bloody battles was something good. But before we leave this topic, I just want to acknowledge the elephant in the room, or the elephant in the passage. In Christian ethics, the ends don't justify the means. And some of David's means sound pretty horrific. Actions that today would be considered war crimes. For example, there's his treatment of the Moabites. Verse 2 says, And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. At least the one-third that were left behind became servants and brought tribute. And then there's the matter of hamstringing a whole lot of horses in verse 4, and of course, the many, many casualties that are listed, the Zobites, the Syrians, and the Edomites, and that he took, whatever that means, and or struck down. In the words of uh, Josiah, Where's Josiah? Oh, there. Yes, in the words of Josiah at our uh, pastoral meeting this week, uh, when we were reading this passage, these things really offend our sensibilities. So let me address this briefly before we move on. The book of 1 Chronicles is a historical book in the Bible that parallels the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. Uh, this book sometimes has details not found in Samuel. In particular, 1 Chronicles has more details on the question of David's war excesses. In 1 Chronicles, David confesses that although he had it in his heart to build a house for the name of the Lord, that is to build a temple in Jerusalem that would house the Ark of the Covenant, but the Lord forbade him because he was a man of war who had shed much blood. <coughs> At the earlier service, Keith uh, encouraged me to give you the references for this in case you want to look up what 1 Chronicles has to say on this matter. So uh, you would look up um, 1 Chronicles 22, verse 8. And also, you don't need to look it up now, but you could look it up later. And also, verse 1, uh, 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 28, verse 3. So that was 22, verse 8, and 28, verse 3. So again, the Lord forbade David, being the one to build the house for his name, because he was a man of war, who shed much blood. David goes on to recount that the Lord promised him a son who would be a man of rest. His name would be Solomon. The name Solomon is from shalom, meaning rest or peace. The Lord promised that in the days of Solomon, Israel would have rest, and Solomon would be the one to build the temple. So although um, chapter 8 in, in, in 2 Samuel testifies 
that the Lord gave victory to David in his battles to fully possess the promised land, 1 Chronicles says that that doesn't mean all of David's war actions during his military career were right in the eyes of the Lord. It seems that alongside the unavoidable bloodshed of fighting the Lord's battles, there had been unnecessary bloodshed. And so David disqualified himself for building the temple. God assigned that job to his son Solomon. But you may know that Solomon, the man of rest, after faithfully building the temple for the name of the Lord, squandered the gracious gift of rest that the Lord had given him on sinful indulgences, including, but not limited to, 1,000 sexual partners. The Bible says his many wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. And so in the end, friends, it was not the reign of Solomon, the man of rest, but rather the reign of David, the man of war, with his many flaws and faults that the Bible is not shy to expose, including in the multiple sexual partners department. It is the reign of David that became the gold standard against which the reigns of future kings would be measured. In the Bible, the account of the reign of every king who was a descendant of David begins either like this, King so-and-so did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as David his father had done, or like this, King so-and-so walked in all the sins of another so-and-so, or that all the, all the sins that, the, that another so-and-so did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. All right, so we've covered the battles, the gore section of the chapter. On to the glory section of the chapter, verses 7 to 12. In these verses we read that David took all the gold, silver, and bronze that he acquired as spoils of war, gifts, and tributes, and dedicated all of it to the Lord. He did not keep these precious metals to enhance his glory, but committed them to be used for God's glory. This action of David here in chapter 8 anticipates the fulfillment of another promise that was made in chapter 7, because these are the precious metals that David will direct Solomon to use in the building of the temple. So that's the glory section of the chapter. Finally, the government section of the chapter, verses 15 to 18. In this section, yet another promise from chapter 7 is fulfilled. The people of Israel are blessed. 
because they live under good government. David is a just and righteous king. Uh, verse 15 explicitly states that David administered justice and equity to all the people. And verses 16 to 18 list the officials of his government who helped David govern effectively. Joab is over the army for external security and um, Benaiah is over the Carathites and the Pelethites who are the king's bodyguard uh, for internal security. Sariah is the secretary, think secretary of state, administrator for external affairs, foreign affairs. And Jehoshaphat is the recorder, administrator for internal affairs. Zadok and Ahimelech are the priests for worship, and David's sons also have a role. Um, the ESV says they are priests, but an alternative translation, um, or alter various alternative translations call them assistants, royal advisors, or chief ministers. There are also two other things in chapter 8, one from each of the two previous sections I discussed, that testify that David is a righteous king. Um, back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God through Moses gave guidelines for the kind of king Israel was to have once they were settled in the promised land. God's king was not to be the kind of king everyone else had. Remember that? Our chapter shows David obeying two of these important guidelines. One of the guidelines in Deuteronomy 17 was that the king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. This guideline is about war horses, the most sought after military asset in the ancient world. God's king was to trust in God for salvation, not war horses. This helps explain uh, verse 4 of our chapter that said, David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for a hundred chariots. To hamstring a horse does not kill the horse, or even prevent the horse doing useful work, the procedure involves cutting the sinew in the back legs of the horse so that it is not able to run uh, and function as a war horse. It would be the equivalent today of decommissioning a military vehicle so that it could um, not be used for war but still be able to serve civilian purposes. Ironically, while David, the man of war, resisted the temptation to acquire more than a small number of chariots and horses, Solomon, the man of rest, will go on to acquire a very large number of chariots and horses and even build whole chariot cities to house this equipment and house the horsemen that are trained to use uh, chariots and war horses. Another guideline in Deuteronomy 17 says, 
Nor shall God's king acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. We already saw how David did not keep uh, precious metals for himself, but dedicated them for the Lord's glory to be used in the building of a temple for the Lord's name. Again, there is a striking contrast with uh, Solomon. After Solomon builds the temple for the Lord using the valuable materials that David has, had uh, given, had dedicated for this purpose, Solomon went on to acquire unprecedented riches to enhance his own glory and indulge himself and his court. So that was the government section of our chapter in which Another promise of chapter 7 is fulfilled as the people of Israel are blessed to live under the good government of a righteous and just King David. So here in chapter 8, we see the fulfillment of many of the promises in chapter 7. What remains is for David's throne to be established forever and blessing to extend to all the families of the earth. And in chapter 8, I, I feel that there's, there's high hope that this too will come with a succession of good kings descended from David, beginning with, with Solomon. But as you already heard in the many references I've made already to Solomon, Sadly, this is not to be. After Solomon builds the temple, he indulges in a decadent lifestyle and ends up turning his heart away from the Lord. Following Solomon, David's glorious kingdom unravels over a period of 400 years. At the end, it seems like there is nothing left. The monarchy has failed, the land is overthrown, the people are in exile, Jerusalem is sacked, the temple is burned to the ground. Yet, it is the content of 2 Samuel chapters 7 and 8, the promises and their preliminary fulfillment, God's kingdom prototype, if you will, in the glorious kingdom of Israel under David's reign. It is these things that give future Israelite generations hope. In the midst of flagrant injustice and unrighteousness, this hope is kept alive by Israel's prophets. The God who in David's time fulfilled his promises to David for the sake of his people Israel, is faithful. He will yet fulfill his promise that David's throne will be established forever. The prophets speak of a great king, a son of David, the anointed one, the Messiah. He will reign forever over an everlasting kingdom of justice and righteousness. The images that the prophets use to portray this coming king vary. They include a suffering servant, a David the Conqueror figure, and a glorious ruler of justice 
and peace. We know the coming King is Jesus Christ. And all these images are right. They're true. For the sake of the people of God, including all of us, King Jesus came the first time as the suffering servant. If he hadn't, we would all perish when he comes as the David the Conqueror figure. Because every one of us, in one way or another, resists the reign of the true king. Just as in our chapter, the surrounding peoples resisted the reign of David and necessitated his conquest of them. So Jesus came the first time and, and took all of our rebellious and resistant actions upon himself and shed his blood and died in our place. He shed his blood voluntarily to save us having to shed our blood involuntarily when he comes again to finally establish his forever kingdom. In a world where injustice and unrighteousness continues to abound and proliferate, the just and righteous kingdom of God will ultimately come not by the gradual evolution of human beings becoming better and better, it comes at the cost of blood. The only question is, will it be Jesus' blood or ours? Jesus shed his blood to save ours being shed on the final battlefield that will decide everything forever. Think about that today when you come to receive communion. Jesus shed his blood to save ours being shed on the final battlefield that will decide everything forever. Jesus offers us his blood in place of ours. It's an offer to which I will not say, take it or leave it. I will say, take it, don't leave it. In conclusion, let's return to our chapter and draw out um, a brief application for us from each of the three parts of the text. First, from the part of the text about the conquests involved in establishing uh, David's kingdom, what I call the Gore section, I encourage you and me to develop a biblical understanding of the kingdom of God and of the first and second coming of Christ. Pray about your response to this understanding and then be guided and empowered by God's Holy Spirit to live out this response. Second, from the part of the text where David, the man of war, devotes the wealth he has received to the Lord's glory and not his own. The glory section. I encourage you and me to consider by contrast as a cautionary tale what Solomon, the man of rest, did and didn't do with the wealth he received. 
in my recent travels, it really struck me how good we have it here in Canada in this generation. Living in a time of relative peace, prosperity, freedom, and leisure. Pray about how God would have you invest for his glory what you have been given. And then be guided and empowered by God's Holy Spirit to live out this response. Third, from the part of the text that speaks of David's just and righteous reign over the kingdom that God established for the sake of his people, the government section, I encourage you and me to exemplify the kingdom of God in the spheres of influence God has given us. Pray about how you can administer justice and equity to your people, whether your people are subordinates, peers, or superiors, and then be guided and empowered by God's Holy Spirit to live out this response. And finally, friends, when you and I fall short in living out the response to God's word that God is calling us to, let us repent and believe that our king has given his blood to save ours. Receive that gracious loving gift anew and be free to love with his heart the other people in our lives for whom he also shed his blood. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.